Amen. Would you bow and pray with me as we prepare to open God's Word? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness demonstrated uh, most powerfully at the cross and how that kindness uh, leads us to repentance, how that kindness assures us of your pardon for our sin. We pray that today your kindness would be extended to us once again in that you would help us to understand and receive the truth of Scripture, that you would enable us to believe it and to obey it, that you might continue to be glorified for your goodness and grace, that we might continue to be sanctified and conformed into your image. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Please open with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. I'd like to read our text before we begin. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Luke writes, after this, after the healing of the paralytic and the forgiveness of his sins, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As many of you know, Thanksgiving is soon approaching. And Thanksgiving for me, for my family, is probably one of the favorite holidays uh, historically that that we have enjoyed. And maybe that's strange. I know I've talked to some people who think Thanksgiving is boring. said, all you do is sit around and eat food. I say, yes, exactly. That is the point. And to be fair, we eat food every day. Uh, I already ate a bowl of cereal. I'll probably have lunch today, dinner at some point. Many of you have eaten or will eat. Eating a meal can just be part of our regular daily necessity, right? We need to. But a meal can also mean so much more. A meal can be very, very significant. Many of us have experienced that, perhaps at Thanksgiving or perhaps at a wedding reception or some other setting. When you have a meal with loved ones present, with friends gathered around, shared food becomes shared life. It's a time of conversation and laughter and deep relational connection. And this is not just some feature of American culture. It's it's a very human thing. God actually designed us this way. In fact, we see the importance of sharing a meal in many significant settings throughout Scripture. You remember in the book of Genesis that Abraham demonstrated hospitality and hosted angelic guests, guests at his tent for a meal. Later, Israel would be given the Passover as an annual celebration, this meal that commemorated their deliverance from Egypt. Later, the Lord's Supper would be given to the church as a communal remembrance of Christ's work 
on the cross and a celebration of his grace provided to us in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. And as we read scripture, we're told that all of history is ultimately bending towards a great and final meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where God's people will feast with him in heaven. So meals matter. Meals can be very, very significant. And in our text today, we find Jesus sharing a meal. And this is more than just, hey, you know, it's about 12 o'clock or about 6 o'clock and we should probably scrounge something up to eat. No, this meal means something. Jesus is the guest of honor at a great feast. But just like we saw last week, once again, Jesus encounters opposition. There's conflict here with the religious leaders. It's obvious from this conflict that they don't understand his mission. But this text is given to us so that we can, so that we will understand his mission. The ministry of Jesus reveals the mission of Jesus. He came to call sinners to repentance. I want to offer three insights this morning into the ministry of Jesus, insights that I think will help us to understand the true essence of Jesus' ministry. Luke begins in verse 27. He starts this story by saying, after this, after this. We have to ask the question, after what? Keep in mind, Luke is stringing together several stories here in a sequence. And he's been touching on this theme in the last several narratives that he has sort of combined together. We saw a few weeks ago how Jesus heals a leper. The leper is an outsider, and Jesus has compassion on him and heals him. We saw last week that Jesus heals a man who is paralyzed. He saw that the paralytic was a sinner, and he not only healed him, he forgave his sins. Both of these stories are pointing to a spiritual truth that Jesus came to cleanse us. He came to heal us, not just in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. We need forgiveness of sin. And in what follows, in this story, it becomes clear that these two miracles, the cleansing of the leper, the healing of the paralytic, they're not just random. They're not just one-offs that says, well, one time Jesus did this. They illustrate his mission, and they are building towards this definitive statement of Jesus' saving purpose. We find the definitive statement At the end of our text, in verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I want to look, first of all, at the example of his ministry in verses 27 through 28. As we see this example that Jesus calls sinners to repentance. It says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. This is very similar to Jesus calling um, um, Peter and Andrew, to Jesus calling James and John. He found those men as they were busy at work. They were fishing. They were cleaning their nets, doing things fishermen do, and Jesus called them. Jesus does the same thing here, to leave his occupation behind and follow. And this was incredibly surprising because of who Levi was. Levi, as Luke points out, is a tax collector. He's a tax collector who's sitting at his tax booth. He's doing the collecting. The way it worked back in those days was that a region, this is under the rule of the Roman Empire, a region would be assessed for how much tax revenue it should bring in. 
Okay, this town has you know, this, this much economy, this much revenue, this is how much taxation should happen. And then once they established that information, bids would be taken in to see who wanted that job position. And it would go to the highest bidder. The highest bidder would be responsible for extracting the required amount from Rome. But then that tax collector who gathered all of the taxes in was allowed to sort of pay his own salary with whatever he could squeeze out of the people on top of that. So for those who were good at this, it became a very lucrative job. And it attracted people who had no integrity. This job attracted people who didn't care about anyone else except for themselves. Extortion and dishonesty was common. There was a lot of money in being a tax collector, but it was dirty money. And the Jews hated these people. They hated them because they worked with the enemy. They served Rome, the occupying power that ruled over them, that restricted their liberties. The tax collectors helped the enemy by profiting off of their own countrymen. They were seen as traitors, as sellouts. Tax collectors were seen as being equal with robbers and murderers. The regular citizens put them in that same category. And because of that, they were outcasts. In fact, tax collectors were disqualified from acting as a judge or a witness in a trial. They wouldn't be admitted as as a valid witness because everyone knew they had no integrity. They would say anything or do anything to make a dollar. You can't trust them. They were likewise excommunicated from the synagogue. They were seen as spiritually and ethically impure, contaminated, unholy. They were religious outcasts. They would have brought disgrace to their whole family. It was a public shame if someone from your home became a tax collector. And so to this man, to Levi, who's sitting at his tax booth, Jesus comes and he says, follow me. I want you, Levi, I want you to be my disciple. Again, I don't want to lose sight of the way this story builds on the one before it. In the story of the leper, in the story of the paralytic, the spiritually needy, the physically needy, come seeking Jesus. In fact, they're willing to tear a hole in the roof, to find him, to get to wherever he is. They're seeking what he has to offer. But in this story, we find the reverse, that Jesus is seeking the spiritually needy. That Jesus does more than just receive sinners who come to him. Jesus takes the initiative. Levi has been chosen. And Levi responds. Verse 28 says, Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Jesus here is fishing for men, and Levi is hooked. Luke records that he left everything. And he's even leaving everything behind in a different way than the fishermen would have. I mean, consider how the fishermen had good, honest work. They could have gone back to that job at any point if they needed to. And in fact, they did. Later, we see that Peter goes fishing. But for Levi to leave everything behind, this is a one-way street. Levi turned his back on his highly sought-after job. Levi turned his back on his impressive income. Levi turned his back on his political status with the knowledge that there is no going back. In order for him to do that job, there was moral compromise. Following Jesus means he would have to turn his back on a whole way of life, on a corrupt system of ethics that he had always profited from. Even though Levi had sacrificed so much to get where he was, think about it, he sacrificed his family. He sacrificed his reputation. He sacrificed his access to the synagogue. He sacrificed 
his citizenship in a sense to get that money. But Jesus calls him and he leaves everything. Leaving everything behind, he rose and followed him knowing that there was no going back. Why would Levi do this? Levi has a new master and it isn't money. It's the Messiah. Levi would actually become one of the 12. He would be an apostle, one of the 12 that was sent out and commissioned by Christ. You probably know him by his other name, Matthew. Levi and Matthew are the same man. And in a beautiful irony, the one who had taken so much from people as a tax collector would be used by God to give a beautiful gift to the followers of Christ by penning the gospel of Matthew. Think about it. Matthew, this man Levi has given us a rich treasure in the gospel that he wrote. It's a beautiful picture of redemption, doesn't it? Doesn't it give us this beautiful picture? It shows us the nature of Christ's mission that he came to call sinners to repentance. Following this surprising selection, we're then taken to Levi's house for a celebration. And we find the result of this ministry that Jesus is at work doing. Jesus calls sinners to repentance, but then secondly, we find that Jesus welcomes the repentant into fellowship. In verse 29, Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Luke says it's a great feast. This is not warmed up leftovers from yesterday. This is a great feast where he pulled out all the stops. It's a celebration, which shows us that Levi is not sad about leaving his old life behind. Levi is completely opposite of of Lot's wife. Remember the story in the Old Testament where Lot and his family flee from Sodom and his wife looks over her shoulder because she didn't really want to leave. She missed what she was leaving behind. She loved that place and all of the comforts it had, and God judged her for that. But Levi is completely the opposite. He is rejoicing. He's rejoicing in the calling of Jesus, that he has the privilege of following Christ, and he wants the others around him, other people like him, to get a chance to meet Jesus as well. So there's a lot of tax collectors present. It's a large company of them, Luke says. They're not the only ones there. Verse 30 tells us that Jesus' other disciples are there as well. Think about what this would have meant for the disciples. Following Jesus means you go where Jesus goes. It means you do what Jesus does. And on this day, it means you go to a feast at the house of a tax collector. The gospel is creating a new community. And it's a very diverse community. I mean, think about how these fishermen... Who, if this is in Capernaum, which is where I think this probably happened, these fishermen had done business in the same town where Levi had collected his taxes. In all likelihood, they knew him, and he knew them. I'm sure that this nice home that Levi was hosting them in was probably furnished with many luxuries. You can imagine Andrew and Peter and James and John being like, man, that's what our hard work paid for. (laughs) There's their hard labor. But Levi was leaving that life behind. That was the old man. He's a new man with a new master. And these are now his people. This is a new community. And for Levi, all of this is a cause for great joy. He holds a great feast. His friends are summoned. And Jesus is being honored. He's the honored guest. 
All throughout Luke's gospel, this theme of joy in salvation is always connected. There's joy and salvation that comes together. We see it in the birth narratives when Jesus enters the world. Remember the, the words of the angels. The angel said to the shepherds in Luke 2.10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Great joy because the good news is the message of salvation. And it's even for people like Levi. It's even for tax collectors. We see this joy and salvation paired together in Jesus' teaching in Luke 15, where Jesus tells three different stories. He tells a story about a lost sheep. He tells a story about a lost coin. And he tells a story about a lost son, a prodigal son. And in all three of these stories, there is great joy when the lost sheep is found, when the lost coin is discovered, when the prodigal son comes home. Luke 15, 7 says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This joy is on display in Levi's house. It's obvious in Levi. He's the host of the party. It's obvious in Jesus. Verse 29 says he reclines at table with them. This is a posture of intimate fellowship. These low-lying tables that would generally have cushions and pillows stacked around where people would lounge together and enjoy meals and conversation. So we see joy with Christ and with his new disciple and with his former disciples, but not everyone is feeling the joy. In stark contrast, the unbelieving Pharisees and scribes once again enter the scene, and they respond very differently. And in the the conflict that follows, we find Jesus giving the explanation for his ministry. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. Jesus welcomes the repentant into fellowship. But Jesus also confronts the self-righteous. He confronts those who are dismissive of repentance. You see this in verse 30 through 32. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The scribes that Luke mentions here are scholars of the law. These are men who are highly educated. They're responsible for interpreting and for teaching God's law. And many of these scribes had embraced the ideology of the Pharisees. Many of them were part of this Pharisee movement. It was a movement among the lay people of those that were highly dedicated to purity. And so they often became separatists. They were so focused on holiness that they wanted to stay far away from anything that might jeopardize their holiness. In fact, they were so serious about this that the Pharisees were famous for making up additional laws, making up their own rules that went beyond what God's law required because they wanted to stay as far away as possible, sort of building a fence around God's law. And while there were some Pharisees that were very sincere, some of them were spiritually genuine, like Nicodemus, whom Jesus meets in John 3, many of the Pharisees were not. Hypocrisy was rampant among them because mere externalism just focusing on the rules on the outside, that can never change the heart. And their hearts were hard. The scribes and Pharisees heard about this feast, and they had a big problem with it. If Jesus is a teacher of the law, how, why would he associate with the lawless? If Jesus is holy, why would he rub shoulders with sinners? This makes no sense to them. 
Imagine their shock for a moment if they would have understood that Jesus is more than a teacher of the law, that Jesus is actually the Son of God. They really would have had an even bigger problem with that. But notice they don't bring up this objection directly to Jesus. I don't know if maybe they're afraid of getting embarrassed again. Remember last week, Jesus, he read their minds, he knew their thoughts, and he said, why do you question among yourselves? And he sort of exposed them, exposed their unbelief when he healed the paralyzed man. So this time they don't directly engage with Jesus. They actually challenge his disciples. They grumbled, verse 30, against his disciples, or grumbled at his disciples. There's an implied condemnation in their words. It's not an honest question. It's a judgment. Why are you doing that? This is obviously wrong. They grumbled at his disciples, disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Sinners. This word sinners here in this context means more than just sort of that basic description of people who aren't perfect. In that sense, we are all sinners. In this context, sinners refers to people who are in a category. These are habitual sinners. These are professional lawbreakers, card-carrying violators of God's law. They had a reputation for it. They had no knowledge of God's law, no regard for it either. They didn't care about Sabbath instructions at the synagogue And so they were known for their sinful lifestyles. Because of this, these people were religious outcasts. They may have been Jewish by blood, but they were not Jewish by religion. They were sinners, which is why they would hang out with people like tax collectors who also didn't care about all of those things. And at first glance, their question seems to have actually a little bit of merit. Why would Jesus eat and drink, have this close fellowship with people who are known for being tax collectors and sinners. Perhaps these scribes were thinking of passages like Psalm 1. Perhaps you're familiar with Psalm 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Perhaps that's behind their question. Yes, Psalm 1 warns us of the influence of the ungodly. Psalm 1 warns us of the influence of the sinners and the scornful, but we know that Jesus was not there to be influenced. Jesus was the one doing the influencing. Jesus is not walking in their counsel. Jesus is not embracing their ways. Jesus is not adopting their attitudes. What's he doing? He's calling sinners to repentance. That's why Jesus is there. But these men fail to see that. They're just offended. They're offended because Jesus didn't follow their customs. They would have avoided classes of people like this. Their question revealed they really didn't understand Jesus' message. They really didn't understand Jesus' ministry. The Pharisees believed that in order to be right with God, that what these sinners needed was external reform. But Jesus is preaching a spiritual repentance. The Pharisees believed that they would be accepted by God because of their keeping of the law. But Jesus was preaching acceptance with God through belief in the gospel, turning from sin and trusting in Christ. And the scribes and the Pharisees just don't get it. So notice how Jesus responds to them in verse 31. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus starts by saying something that they obviously would have agreed with. 
It's a word of wisdom. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. This is just common sense. Who could possibly deny this truism? So Jesus has them right where he wants them because they can't help but acknowledge this first point. At this stage of the argument, Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes, they all agree. They all agree. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then Jesus pushes the ball further down the field. He moves from this word of wisdom to a word of revelation, a parallel truism, a statement that follows the same lines of logic that Jesus has just gotten them to admit. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I think Jesus' answer here to them is actually twinged with a bit of sarcasm. There's a barb in this statement. We should not read this to mean that Jesus says there's some who are actually righteous and don't need to repent. That's not what he means. We know this because later in Luke, Luke chapter 18, verse 19, Jesus says to another man, why do you call me good? With a twinkle in his eye. He says, no one is good except God alone. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul would quote from Psalm 14. He writes in Romans 3, 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So when Jesus says he did not come to call the righteous... You can sort of put that in air quotes, if you will, because we're all sinners, aren't we? We all need Jesus' saving work, and these Pharisees are no exception. These men assumed that they were righteous based on their strict adherence to the law, but in reality, they were no different than the tax collectors. They may have looked different on the outside, but their hearts were the same. Their hearts were sinful. They needed forgiveness. They needed cleansing. They needed something that Jesus could offer. But sadly, their blindness to their own need, their refusal to acknowledge their own sin, it kept them from experiencing the forgiveness Jesus had come to provide. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century English preacher, wrote that to feel our sins and to know our sickness is the beginning of real Christianity. That's where it starts. But these men didn't get it. They saw no need for repentance in their own lives, and so they felt no need for Jesus. The same is true for people today. Those who see no need for repentance in their own lives will feel no need for Jesus. Later on, Luke will record a parable that Jesus tells about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, you have to wonder if these events, if this feast and this meal and this conversation sort of inspired Jesus to tell this parable later. In Luke 18, or 18 verse 9, he tells a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Levi knew that he was a sinner. And so he knew that he needed a savior. And when Jesus calls him to follow, that's why he turns away from everything. He leaves it all behind to follow Jesus. And because Levi repented of his sin, because Levi said yes to the call of Christ, that's why Jesus ate with him. That's why Jesus accepted him. That's why Jesus identified with him and fellowshiped with him. The Pharisees were blind to their sin. They saw no need for repentance, which is why they rejected Jesus and rejected his mission, which is why Jesus rejected them. The ministry of Jesus with confrontations like this, it reveals to us the nature of Christ's mission. He came to call sinners to repentance. He seeks them. He calls them. And when sinners repent, Jesus joyfully welcomes them into fellowship with him. Luke, the Gentile who writes this book, is once again highlighting the glorious reality that in the gospel, the outsiders become insiders. The unlikely are called to follow Jesus. That Jesus brings good news of salvation that is for everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what your history may be. Stories like this prompt reflection for us. It's meant to be applied. I have to ask, first of all, have you left everything behind to follow Jesus? Jesus came to call sinners to repent. Have you repented? Are you willing to turn away from those things that are incompatible with following Christ? For Levi, it meant he had to leave his occupation because it was a dirty business. What about you? You know, there's some people who want to refashion Jesus into a different image than who he really is. They look at stories like this and they want to sort of repaint Jesus as their drinking buddy, somebody who's always accepting, somebody who would never condemn sin. And they would say, hey, Jesus hung out with sinners. That's the argument. True, he did. But this eating takes place in the context of a story. The story starts with a calling. It's followed by repentance. And then it finally results in fellowship. Each one of those components matters. There's a sequence here. Jesus calls us to leave behind our sin and follow him. So Jesus' sharing of the meal in Levi's house that should never be confused with overlooking sin. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Don't forget the repentance part. So listen, if you're hearing the call of Jesus today, if you are sensing your need to repent, to turn away from your old life, to turn away from the old you, and to let go of those things that are sinful in the eyes of a holy God, then follow the example of Levi. Put it behind you. Cut it loose. And be encouraged that there is a seat at the table for you. If you will repent and follow Christ, he will welcome you. He will save you. He will forgive you, 
He'll give you a new identity, a new community, a new mission. I think there's a second point of application. For those of us who know Christ and are believers in the gospel, we ought to rejoice in the welcoming fellowship of Christ. There should be joy here. There should be joy in us, in our homes, in our hearts, around our tables. Rejoice in the welcoming fellowship of Christ. Yes, the call to repentance that we see so often in the Gospel of Luke, that we see so often throughout Scripture, the call to repentance is hard. It includes sober warnings. If you do not repent, there is judgment that is coming. And yes, the call to repentance involves painful changes. It's not easy to leave everything behind and follow Jesus. It might feel like taking up your cross. It might feel like giving up your life. Yes, repentance is painful and costly, but repentance is a summons to joy. The call to repent and follow Jesus is part of this message that is good news. And we ought to rejoice in the fact that Christ has welcomed us in his call to repentance. Consider the future meal that we will get to share with Jesus. Consider that joyful celebration, that perfect fellowship with our Savior at the table. When sinners like us, outsiders like us, are welcomed into the presence of God. I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6. Starting in verse 6, John writes, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Listen, friends, if you know Christ, that is our future. That's where we are heading. As those who are forgiven, as those who follow Christ, as those who are destined for that great feast, there ought to be an aroma of joy in us gladness, that we've been accepted by Jesus, that we've been welcomed into his family, that he came seeking us. It's not just that he was willing begrudgingly to let us in after we banged on the door long enough. No, Jesus takes the initiative. He comes seeking us out. He calls our name, and then he welcomes us, enjoys fellowship with us. That is something that calls for rejoicing and feasting. And then third and finally, as those who believe in this gospel, we are called to embrace the mission of Christ. We are to embrace it. What we see Jesus doing, he's still doing. He's still calling sinners to repentance, except now he's doing it through us. Jesus is still welcoming sinners into this new community, and the community is here. We are to embrace this mission just as Levi invited a large company of tax collectors to his home to be with Jesus, the Lord now uses us to call sinners to repent. 
He uses us to welcome them into the family of God. So it is our great joy not only to fellowship with Christ, we get to invite others to join us. Some may be tempted to think that separatism from sinners earns God's favor. Like maybe you're going to stand someday before the judge of all the earth and say, Lord, I stayed away from all the dirty people. I kept a good safe distance from all the people that were messed up, all the people who who were failures, all the people who had baggage, all the people that were wrong about everything. But I think on that day, God is going to say, well, that's the opposite of what I wanted you to do. That's the opposite of what I did. Do we reflect the attitude of our Savior towards sinners? We need to ask ourselves that question. Do you instinctively move toward people who are sinners? People who have made a mess out of their lives. People who may be despised. People who may be unpopular. People who are on the outside. People who don't have it all together. I think most of us would say to anyone, friend, there is room at the cross for you. And we should. But would we say there is room in my home for you? There's room at my table. There's room at my church. There's room in my small group. If we've truly understood the gospel and received the grace of Christ, then this welcoming spirit should be evident in us. This story reveals to us the mission of Jesus, doesn't it? He came to call sinners to repentance. That's why he came. That's why Jesus is preaching. That's why he's eating at Levi's house. And that's also why one day Jesus would go to Jerusalem. He would endure a mock trial. He would be scourged and beaten, falsely condemned, and nailed to a Roman cross because he came to call sinners to repentance. And he came to make provision so that those sinners could be cleansed in the shedding of his blood. He came to bring salvation to people like you and me, to bring us new life, to bring us into a new community, to give us a new master, a new identity, and a new mission. So let's respond to that truth. Let's respond to that good news of salvation in Jesus. Let's respond like Levi did. Let's turn from the things that hold us back. Let's invite others to join us as we celebrate the gospel. And may our fellowship and rejoicing here, in this church, in these hearts, in these homes, may that joyful celebration and fellowship be a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That great day when we, the sinners, will be welcomed into the presence of our Savior to eat to feast, to rejoice with him. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you sent Jesus to seek and to save the lost. That he would call sinners like us to repentance because in that call there is good news. It's an offer of forgiveness. And it reveals to us your sovereign plan that you delight to take sinners, to choose them, to change them, to bring them to yourself and to make them disciples, to make them part of your family. Father, we pray that you would continue doing today in us and through us what we see you doing 
through Jesus in this story, taking people like Levi and radically changing them, all for your glory, making him not a servant of Rome, but a servant of your kingdom, not loyal to Caesar, but loyal to Christ, not ruled by money, but ready to serve. Lord, I pray that that process of change would continue in us and that we would model for the world the joyful celebration that takes place when a bunch of sinners realize that they've been called to follow Jesus, that they've been forgiven. May that joy mark our worship and our ministry, our preaching and our teaching, our evangelism, our counseling, our fellowship, our friendships. May that joy in the gospel saturate us so that more people would be desirous to join us, to say yes to the invitation. And we ask God that you would you would bless our efforts to bring more people to the table. We ask that you would save sinners and be glorified as we rejoice in all that you've done for us through Christ. Amen.